A snowstorm and historically cold temperatures last week stretched utility companies, delayed action at the state capitol, and impacted Oklahoma's rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. On this episode of Listen Frontier, we'll discuss all those issues, plus an effort by some lawmakers to change the state's initiative petition process. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. This episode was recorded on Monday, February 22nd. I'll be joined by The Frontier's Cliff Adcock, Cassie McClung, and Kayla Branch. So Cliff, let's start with you. Uh, obviously the big story last week was weather, uh, a, a snow storm here in Oklahoma. Um, maybe not quite as bad as Texas, had in terms of the power outages, but we still saw the um, electric grid here in many parts of the state, uh, you know, stretch to where we saw some uh, controlled blackouts across the state to try to manage the uptick in demand. And we also saw a big demand in natural gas. And and you wrote last week that uh, some natural gas customers have been warned that they're going to see quite a bit higher utility bills in the coming months. And that was something that the, the governor today uh, addressed. Uh, first off, what have you heard about utility prices and bills that could be coming due for Oklahomans? And then what was the governor's response today? Right. So um, it probably won't uh, show up for uh, at least a couple months. Um, but uh, you, you can see where, uh, especially for these non-corporation commi- uh, commission regulated entities, uh, the example I found was the Grove Municipal uh, Authority, uh, who supplies gas to several of the, um, the surrounding communities. Uh, they were having to buy natural gas off the spot market uh, for extremely inflated prices. Uh, and that's probably going to uh, translate to their customers' bills. Uh, a lot of the reason was they had ran out of their, um, their backup supply of natural gas they were going over their long-term contracted amount of natural gas supply, and they were having to buy the excess off the spot market. Uh, usually, it sells for about two to three dollars a decatherm, I believe. Uh, on when they were having to buy off the spot market, it was selling for six hundred. And so today, you heard the governor saying that uh, we're going to try to find ways, or the state and uh, federal agencies, as well as some of the utilities, are going to try to find ways to help people. Uh, with their utility bills. Uh, Corporation Commission regulated entities such as Oklahoma Natural Gas uh, and even some power companies, they're probably going to try to spread the increased cost out over a year. And uh, you likely won't see any major jumps there, uh, according to Kenneth Wagner, the Secretary of Energy and Environment, uh, though there may be some effects down the road uh, that people will have to deal with. Yeah, one of the advice that was given from officials today was to, to maybe uh, disenroll from an automatic uh, bill paying with utility companies, right? Right. Uh, Mike Hunter actually, uh, the attorney general, actually asked the utility companies to cease uh, making those automatic uh, uh, withdrawals for uh, utility uh, payments uh, just because uh, people might not be expecting just from the increased usage, the large bills that are coming due. This is not necessarily dealing with the increased fuel cost, but how much more people are using, two and three times the amount that they uh, normally see. 
Yeah. Well, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, much of the attention in the nation has been focused on Texas, where power outages have remained for millions for days. Uh, you know, some are still without, and there's been a water crisis as well. And, you know, maybe the it, it maybe has softened the blow a little bit here in Oklahoma, right? I mean, if we can see what's going on in Texas, it may maybe it made us feel in Oklahoma like um, things could be a whole lot worse. But, uh, you know, we don't have to get too deep into the weeds on here. But just, you know, real quick, why, why were things so much better here in Oklahoma comparative to, to what we saw in Texas? Sure. Um, Texas uh, doesn't really have any regulation of the energy markets. Uh, we here in Oklahoma have the uh, Corporation Commission, uh, which uh, sets, uh, you know, cost of, uh, cost of fuel prices uh, and uh, electrical rates. Um, and uh, among the rural co-ops, you, you also have regulation. Uh, in Texas, you don't have that. Uh, so it's sort of a free-for-all. And you saw, you know, people being charged thousands of dollars for their uh, electrical bill. Yeah. And, you know, and finally, um, you know, the governor also today kind of remarked on on Oklahoma's just energy sector at large. Um, I think he was specifically asked about, you know, whether or not Oklahoma is doing enough to combat climate change. Of course, there's a lot of attention on that this last week. I mean, no one weather event is necessarily the product of climate change, but we're seeing these, these an increase in, this, in the severity of storm systems. And, you know, comparing ourselves to Texas once again, I mean, we saw a lot of partisanship and, and blame on whether it was, you know, wind power or whether it was oil and gas, but, um, you know, the governor said that he felt pretty uh, confident that Oklahoma had a, a diverse energy sector. So much attention's on oil and gas, but but it really is a, a diverse energy sector here in Oklahoma. And it, it seems like that for the most part, uh, that system, uh, you know, withstood, uh, you know, maybe one of its toughest times ever. That's right. Uh, Oklahoma gets about 40 percent of its uh, electrical generation from wind energy. Uh, the majority of it comes from natural gas. Uh, so that's why... Uh, you see a lot of uh, the natural gas markets, the spikes in prices, uh, you know, possibly affecting uh, Oklahoma utilities. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, pretty wide mix between uh, wind and natural gas. There's uh, some coal, but you saw the usage in coal generation uh, jump significantly last week when the winds died down here in Oklahoma and. Uh, uh, wind uh, generation fell on Wednesday. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, according to Kenneth Wagner, uh, wind energy kind of saved the day uh, on Tuesday whenever um, uh, electricity uh, was, uh, they were doing those rolling blackouts on Tuesday. Uh, the wind picked up and uh, started generating a good chunk of uh, what they could put back into the grid. Yeah, well, a, a difference a week makes, right? It's in the 60s today and sunny and uh, but we know people will be watching their utility bills here in the, in the weeks and months to come. So, hey, Cliff, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. All right, back here in the Oklahoma City studio, joining me is uh, the Frontier's Kayla Branch and from Tulsa, Cassie McClung. And, uh, you know, Cassie, talking with Cliff about the impact the weather had on utilities, uh, the weather also had a, a big impact on the state's vaccine rollout last week. Right. So it caused problems in a few ways. So we know the roads were pretty bad with all the snow and the ice. So first, um, local health departments had to cancel appointments, thousands of appointments, because people just couldn't make it to the vaccination area. And then second, we saw, I think, more than 100,000 doses of the vaccine um, from the federal government 
a shipment of that get delayed to the state because of bad weather across the region. So we had delays in appointments and delays in um, the actual delivery of doses. Um, and I will say uh, the state has, they seem pretty confident that they're going to be able to make that up um, you know, as far as that time loss, because they're going to start vaccination clinics on Sunday. Um, they're going to start adding more appointments. So they seem pretty optimistic that they're going to catch up in the coming weeks. Yeah. So delay in the rollout, but we have uh, started into phase two and we're seeing more Oklahomans now eligible uh, for for the vaccine. Uh, who, who are these Oklahomans that are now, uh, you know, more than a million on Monday that became eligible? Right. So um, starting today, we have all pre-K through 12 educators and school staff, you know, such as bus drivers, cafeteria workers, um, janitorial staff, they're eligible. And then you have Oklahomans with certain health conditions that might make them more um, at risk for becoming really sick with COVID-19. They became eligible today, too. So it's a pretty big group that's probably going to take several months to go through. Yeah, we saw, I know several school districts today did virtual learning, even if they normally do in-person um, or didn't do live virtual learning because so many teachers were signed up to get the vaccine today. That was that was the case in Oklahoma City and you know, the Middell School District. So it kind of, at least on that front, kind of feels like we're maybe turning a corner a little bit, especially in education circles where now teachers and school staff are, are finally able to get vaccinated. Right. I know my, my whole social media feed this morning was just flooded with teachers getting the vaccine and, you know, they're really excited about it. I know the governor has made that one of his top goals is getting teachers vaccinated um, and just trying to get 100% in school learning options. So that's a huge step for the state. And like you said, it's over a million people with teachers and um, those Oklahomans with comorbidities combined. So I mean, it's a huge state, uh, except for the state, it's like a third of the population, I think, is eligible in that group. But I will say, you know, it's a huge group, but not everyone um, is going to be able to get vaccinated at once. Um, you know, a lot of that's going to do with supply. So I think it's going to um, also still call for a lot of patience from people as we move through this. Yeah. So we saw the weather's impact last week on utilities. We saw its impact on on the vaccine rollout. And Kayla, I'll bring you in here. We saw the impact at the state capitol. We saw some sessions and committee meetings that were postponed. Um, and, you know, maybe not a huge deal, but it does kind of present a time crunch this week, right? Because we're, we're, we're at our first deadline for the legislative session. We are, yes. So on this upcoming Thursday is the last day for bills to be heard in the committee of origin. So essentially that just means that if uh, it's a House bill. It has to be heard in a House committee and passed through if it's going to continue on in the legislative process. And since uh, so many committee meetings were canceled or delayed, uh, really lawmakers just have about you know three or four more days to get through uh, the bills that they want to continue on through the process. Yeah, one of the bills that you wrote about last week was uh, this effort to change the initiative petition process, which is which is would be pretty impactful, especially with what we've seen. Um, you know, in recent years related to that. Absolutely. So it has been a, a Republican priority to revisit and revise the way that initiative petitions and state questions work in Oklahoma. Um, over the last five years, there has been just a, a real uptick in successful state questions, and they've been pretty far reaching. So criminal justice reform, Medicaid expansion, 
at like legalizing medical marijuana. And so, yeah, there have been dozens of bills that have been filed that would change signature thresholds and that would require background checks for anybody hired to circulate petitions to get signatures. And there's one lawmaker that wants to change the threshold for um, how many are the percentage of votes that you need to have a state question passed, raising it from just a simple majority to 60 percent. So they're really looking to target that after we've seen Oklahoma voters, mostly in urban areas, uh, really pass progressive policies that the legislature hasn't tackled. Yeah, and you dig into both sides in your article, which people can find now at readfrontier.org. You know, supporters of this would say, hey, this is a chance to kind of balance out the voice of Oklahomans. Uh, you've seen some rural lawmakers who say this is this kind of leaves a lot of the power to the, to the two metro areas. You know, but opponents say that this is really just the legislature upset that some of the things that they've objected to um, and tried to prevent from happening uh, is being fulfilled by voters. And, you know, in Cassie, I mean, you know, Medicaid expansion is one of those, uh, you know, especially if we if we see the threshold uh, raised to 60 percent. You know, that's a big a big thing that the voters approved this past year that wouldn't have happened. Right. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things I thought was really interesting about Kayla's story is so many huge initiatives in the state um, over the past few years have been pushed by voters and you know, decisions from voters. So it's interesting to see lawmakers kind of push back on that. What is it that you think? I mean, you know, these lawmakers are in office because voters voted them in, but yet we're seeing increasingly voters object to the decisions that lawmakers are doing by, you know, you know, enacting something through, you know, a state question. And I even think about the medical marijuana question of a couple years ago. I mean, the state's top lawmakers were opposed to it. And voters put it in. I mean, there's it's kind of an interesting dichotomy right now in the state. Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is that, you know, when you are voting in a lawmaker, you're kind of voting in the whole package, right, of, of all their views mm -hmm. and, and how you think that they might vote when they're in you know, the legislative session. But when you have state questions, you're really kind of pulling all that apart and you're just looking at one very specific issue and you're getting to decide on that. And so I think that it's fair to say, yeah, I voted for this or that lawmaker and maybe they don't agree with it, but I can disagree with them on this issue. Now I get to, to decide as an Oklahoma voter. But I think also, you know, it's kind of just a microcosm of the urban rule divide that we see so broadly, you know, on state, local, the federal level on what people are looking, uh, looking for in kind of the policies. And I think for the first time, in Oklahoma, at least, more people live in urban areas than in rural areas. But, you know, we still have um, our, our districts are set up in, in a certain way. So I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of going forward uh, what what districts look like after the census count has been released and we see new lines kind of drawn up based on Oklahoma's population. Yeah. And you could argue that the legislature has a rural bent. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, in, in many of the same way that we talk about, like the U.S. Senate, for example, um, but in your story, those who are supportive of this effort um, to change the initiative petition process say that this is a chance to that they feel like the urban areas have too much power. And so maybe maybe the legislature bends rural, but the initiative petition process bends urban. And, you know, to both of you, we, we saw that with the Medicaid expansion vote because it was the urban areas that passed this through, not you know the rural areas were, were largely in, in opposition. I think that's totally true. And I I don't know that I would even say that people who don't support these changes or these new regulations deny that fact. You know, I, I talked to one woman, she's an organizer with a civic engagement group in Oklahoma City. And she kind of said, you know, yeah, like we have the lawmakers who have this power to make you know 
laws up at the state capitol. We've got lobbyists who go up there and advocate for this or that, usually um, you know, with a conservative bent to it. And she said the initiative petition process is really like our only avenue to um, you know, make these types of decisions or have these types of policies go forward. And it's not an easy thing to do. So she essentially thought that you know it's fair that we have this um, kind of to combat our really conservative legislature um, on important issues. Yeah, well, there's one thing we know about the legislature and is that uh, they don't like it when they see uh, power beyond their body, right? <laughs> they, I mean, yeah, no, they don't. And whether we're talking about like the, the issue of local control, um, which you know often depends on whether you're talking about the federal government or our local levels. I mean, Cassie, you're in Tulsa, and we're here in Oklahoma City, and we've both seen, you know, quite a bit of uh, efforts by a a rural legislature to kind of uh, you know stop the urban areas from doing certain things. Whether I mean anything from you know setting their own minimum wage or, or plastic banning bags. plastic bags. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, mask mandates. Mask mandate. Yeah, I mean, we've seen bills to try to stop that. You know, these are legislators that are coming from communities that, you know, the mask mandate's a perfect example where their local community is opposed to mandates. You know, Oklahoma City and Tulsa and some other urban centers, you know, have, have enacted them, but these, legisl- these lawmakers are still opposed to that. Yeah, this mindset is, at least to me, doesn't seem to be evenly applied. Let's just say that. I think, um, yeah, like you look at it and... When I was writing this story, something that came to my mind was the uh, power struggle we saw with the legislature and the governor last year, and there was a real kind of rift going on there. And now, you know, we've started out this session, and something that I just keep hearing when they have press conferences or, um, you know, or just talking to the media is, you know, we're really trying to respect the balance of power, we're really trying to respect the way that, uh, you know, the authority that each other has. And I think that, you know, we're kind of seeing the same mindset that, okay, citizens have taken some power away from their lawmakers, and now lawmakers are looking to to get some of that back. Yeah. Well, I mean, politics is a power game, so I guess that's not terribly too surprising. But so I, you, I, forgive me if you'd already said this, but the, the bill that you wrote about, where where is it at now in the process? Yeah. So that particular bill, um, there's there were several that were mentioned in the story, but there's one in particular that is being run by Representative John Pfeiffer. Uh, he is running this bill that would um, require that signatures to get an initiative petition onto a statewide ballot come from all five congressional districts in the state rather than, you know, the theory is that most signatures are coming from urban areas and so rural voters don't even get to decide if something gets on the ballot. And so he's trying to spread that out. And his bill is actually um, being carried like through this mechanism where the speaker can file a bill so it doesn't have to go through the normal process and it can be introduced at a later date rather than having to be uh, through committee at that deadline we talked about earlier that's coming up this Thursday. So his bill hasn't been introduced yet and I don't know you know the specific language that's gonna be in it though he told me this is what he's trying to do. Um, but if it's a speaker bill to me that kind of means that and uh, the Republican leadership is going to be behind it. And we also haven't seen, um, you know, agendas from the Senate or the House, though I imagine that this is going to, you know, changing the initiative petition process is going to be on it. So on that particular bill, we don't really know yet exactly what's going to happen, uh, but others are moving through the process. They're getting out of committee, and I expect more will be on committee agendas this week and will make it to the House and Senate floor. Yeah, great. We'll uh, look forward to following your continued coverage on that. And before we wrap up real quick, uh, uh, Cassie, to you, I mean, um, I know you're, you're tracking a lot of stuff here moving forward, including uh, the ongoing conversations around uh, managed care. Right. So 
Um, one of the companies, and I actually just filed a story on this um, right before we started this podcast, filed a protest um, because they felt the bidding process for those managed care contracts was unfair. Um, so I filed that today, and that's a process I'm going to be following uh, as well, because we, we know, um, Ben, you've written about it too. There's been some, you know, pushback surrounding Oklahoma's managed care program, uh, their plan specifically. So I think uh, that's going to be a big storyline I'm watching. And then another storyline, you know, on a brighter note, we've been seeing COVID-19 hospitalizations fall in Oklahoma, which is great news. Um, And then, you know, just continuing to follow the rollout of the vaccine. Yeah, well, it definitely feels like we've maybe turned a corner. I mean, things are still serious and, and things something that we need to still pay attention to. But, uh, you know, hopefully we're, we're getting closer to, to better days. So, well, hey, uh, Kayla and Cassie, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. You can find all other episodes by subscribing to the Listen Frontier podcast feed on your favorite podcasting app. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for joining us. I'll be back with you next week.